Hi, I'm Lee Keough, Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight, and I'd like to welcome you to our conference podcast series. Today's program is from our event, the 2016 NJ Spotlight on Cities, which was held October 14th at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark. In a session called Affordable Housing in the Cities, we take a look at what one panelist called the crisis in New Jersey housing, that is the lack of affordable homes, as evidenced by the fact half of adults between ages 18 to 34 are living with their parents. The panel for this talk consisted of Stacy Berger of the Housing and Community Development Network of New Jersey, Reverend Eric Dobson of the Fair Share Housing Center, and Renee Wolf Kubayadis of the Anti-Poverty Network of New Jersey. Peter Reinhardt, director of the Kislak Real Estate Institute of Monmouth University, moderated the session. So, uh, still good morning. <laughs> uh, even though some of you, I suspect, have been up for a long time to get here early. Uh, this, is, this is the panel on affordable housing. And my name is Peter Reinhardt. I'm the uh, director of the Kislak Real Estate Institute at Monmouth University. I'm a, prof I'm a professor and, uh, in housing and real estate and all sorts of things like that. But my most important hat is I'm actually one of the founding board members of NJ Spotlight and still on the board. And it's one of the better things that I've ever done in, in, my, uh, in my career. And with us, we have three real great experts in the area of um, affordable housing. And their bios are in the... Uh, this cool little book, and so I won't spend a lot of time talking about them because um, you can see it. But uh, Eric is Reverend Eric is with uh, Fair Share Housing, the uh, who has just done a terrific job as an organization in keeping the the battle going uh, on the on the Mount Laurel litigation front, as well as many of the things they've been doing from 1970s, right when Peter O'Connor uh, started the whole thing. Many people don't know that Peter O'Connor was actually a almost world-class high jumper. Did you know that? <laughs> he was. Yep. Stacy Berger from the the network, as as we call it. Um, how many? You've been head how long, Stacy? Uh, three and a half years. Is it that long yeah, already? Yeah, it's been that long. Wow. And and the housing network has been uh, also one of the great leaders for for decades in the, in the fight for uh, affordable housing in New Jersey. And, and Renee Kubiatis is from the Anti-Poverty Network. I've never had the pleasure of meeting her before today, and she has a very inspiring story, but uh, also doing um, leading the front on on housing for people that are really underserved, uh, to put it mildly. And so uh, we're hopefully to have a, a lively, engaging discussion on, uh, on the issues. Um, you'll notice one thing we don't have on this panel is uh, what is often on these panels, which is a provider, uh, you know, a, a big time builder or something like that, or a nonprofit that builds a lot of housing. But that's, that's what we have today. And, and, you know, we could go on for four hours, but we're limited to, 12.20, 12.25, because there's a hard stop because of food. And we all know that always trumps everything. So um, so let's begin, and I'll just throw out a sort of a generic softball question to all of you. Um, what is the biggest challenge for housing in our cities? And Renee, you want to start? Um, I, I would say definitely affordability. Um, okay. We really have not provided an adequate amount of affordable housing in our state for years, despite the Mount Laurel decisions. Stacy, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Renee. I think that this very specific part is that there's not um, enough state investment to create homes that people can afford. We have some rental vouchers. Uh, they don't go far enough. They do not really get to the level of affordability that we need. But what we have really is a market problem. We have tremendous demand for affordable homes. New Jersey ranks fifth in the out-of-reach report, which is a national analysis of state uh, affordability for a two-market, two-bedroom uh, fair market rent of minimum wage worker would have to work 157 hours a week uh, or you know if they can find three full three and a half full-time jobs um, so good luck finding the, those jobs so we really have a huge demand and no state investment to meet that demand it's really uh, it's a missed opportunity for our state's economy and if you heard the mayor earlier this morning mayor Baraka talking about what we need uh, to make our state thrive, it really is investment in the places where there is demand and to give the, to give folks the opportunity to participate in the economy. And we know if people don't have to spend 70% of their income on rent, they can do other stuff. Um, and that helps our whole economy. Yeah. I would echo the sentiments of my two colleagues. The cost of housing in New Jersey is out of control. And it's just um, something, the need for more housing that's affordable is a, is a must in New Jersey. We're facing a housing crisis. And that housing crisis is definitely um, the lack of the will, a political will, and an investment in affordable housing. So S Stacey mentioned the role of the government. And um, historically, I think we would all agree that um, the market has served reasonably well uh, the non-affordable housing sector, luxury, things like that. But it's been up to government much of the time to um, provide the sources of funding and the programs, et cetera, for affordable housing. Given the fact that our state, uh, to put it mildly, is in a pretty serious fiscal situation, what can be done by the, by the state government to, uh, to, in the area of affordable housing? Anybody? Well, before we get to that question, can I throw something out there? Because I promised the people who was in the environmental justice session, I promised I promised a short spiel, and I will keep it short. Um, I, I actually when um, when. Paula asked if I would, would, or somebody asked if I would be on this panel. I said yes, but can we please call it something else? Um, because the frame of affordable housing really makes people think of something other than what most of us are talking about and what most people want. Um, there was a, a, a huge study done by the Fannie Mae Foundation while it was still in business that demonstrated that when you say affordable housing to almost everybody, except maybe the four of us and a couple of people in the audience, people think Cabrini Green, they think high rise, they think drugs, they think crime, they think they don't want it in their neighborhood, they just, they have a visceral reaction and I think it's up to us as advocates for people who need homes they can afford to really fight to change that language. And I think it's a, the best case example I can point to is when folks changed the framing around marriage equality from gay marriage to marriage equality. You saw demonstrable change in, in polling, in support, and then you saw a real change in policy. And so I sort of challenged everybody in the room, or not sort of, I do, um, to, to change the way we talk about these issues. Because if we keep saying affordable housing, like every time you say it, it reinforces the frame. And if you have nothing to do this weekend, you should pick up George Lakoff's Don't Think of the Elephant. It is a fabulous short um, read about language and the importance of framing conversations and tough policy issues. And there may not be a tougher policy issue than the choice for where people get to live. And so so I, I really, I can't, I don't want to be critical of our sponsors today because I think that New Jersey Spotlight does a great job. But if we can just take that, if you could just say affordable homes instead of affordable housing, you will do as much 
good as you can possibly do to help us get the funding we need from the state. And that is really the single thing we need to do. We need to talk to our elected officials about why they need to provide the resources to build the homes that people want and need in New Jersey. And that's what the state should do. It's what they, they need to do, and it's up to us to make them do it. Sorry for the soapbox, but I, pr I promised you all in my other presentation, so I delivered. Well, I think I'm one get of out the, of the way. <laughs> I mean, I think Stacy uh, summed it up uh, very, very eloquently that the need for the investment in our state um, to build housing that's affordable. And I think all of us are going to be facing this challenge in the, over the next uh, few years since New Jersey leads the nation in the number of millennials living at home. Now, I ran from my two millennials. I left them at the house and bought another house. But you all may be in a situation where your kids can't afford to move out. So, I mean, this is a real challenge for us in New Jersey that, you know, we're taking care of our adult kids, uh, um, which is challenging. I mean, if you have adult kids, you know what I mean? Um, it is a challenge. And I think part of the process of, of you know, the American dream of have, putting our kids through college and them going out and getting a job and moving out and starting a family on our own is happening much later. So not only are our kids dealing with the financial burden of not having enough housing, but you all are, are as, as well. And so it's a double-edged sword. So I think it's important for us to really um, look at what the government needs to do in terms of investing, um, investing in the trust fund, making sure that towns are building the homes they should be building from the trust fund, and make sure that our elected officials are not trying to raid the coffers of those trust funds and make sure housing gets built the way it should be getting built. Yeah, I totally agree with my colleagues here. Um, you know, we really need to reframe the debate on who is poor in our state and why they're poor. Um, we ha when you have 25% of the population in our state um, counting the working poor, um, struggling to meet basic necessities, um, and by the way, working poor are two words that should never be heard together in the richest nation in the world and one of the richest nations, uh, richest states in the nation. Um, but when you have that many people who are struggling every day to put food on the table, to pay their, all of their bills, um, to get to work um, and keep their car running and all of those kinds of things. Um, we really need to look at housing is a, is a critical piece of helping people in our state, um, but we really need to look at things in a more comprehensive way um, because if you give somebody housing and their wage is still 838 an hour um, and it is lower than the federal poverty level in this state, um, then they're never going to be able to maintain that housing um, you know, for time to come. Um, and so we really need to look at all the basic needs together um, when we're looking at policy, I think. Um, and so certainly I think one of the ways that the state um, can help and um, is really in this fight over affordable housing right now and building the fair share of housing um, that Eric and his colleagues are working on um, and other advocates around the state to make sure, um, and, and citizens can get involved as well, to make sure that our municipalities are really not only making fair agreements with the Fair Share Housing Center, um, but also implementing them in the right way. Because as, as Stacy mentioned, uh, we have NIMBY. And so that prevents really um, housing that will reach the families, the individuals. You know, it's so acceptable for our municipalities to build housing for seniors, for the disabled, but we really need to talk about everyone who needs stable, safe housing. Uh, interesting, as Stacy talked about 
try and call it affordable, something other than housing. Affordable homes is what homes works. Homes is what you threw out. It reminded me back in my my days when I worked for a very large home builder. Our CEO said we have to stop referring to what we build as units. My least favorite word ever. I feel like I'm stuck in a Beavis and Butthead. And he cartoon. made an excellent point. You don't say, hey, would you like to come over to our unit for dinner? Exactly. <laughs> so, and we, we started, everybody in the company started calling it homes after that. So I, I totally Thank you, get Peter. it. Peter. Yeah. <laughs> but yet the, the, the session is called, my, like, head well, came off. You know, and, and, uh, and Elaine, we're making a note of that for, uh, for next year. Affordable residences. <laughs> anyway, everybody wants uh, an affordable home, even though even the millennials. You know, Renee and I have both have younger kids than Eric, um, and Eric scares us sometimes. Um, and we're, I'm like, if my kids don't get out of my house in seven years, I have like, I, you know, <laughs> go be be your own adult. Well, actually, and it's hard when they don't have a place they can afford. You actually raise an interesting question, a point, because there are uh, there's there's a push, and and I don't know if. You, any of you saw the White House uh, report on housing and housing development toolkit mm -hmm. that came out just a week or two ago. And one of their uh, suggested tools is um, accessory uh, dwellings and things like that. And there's actually, you know, I've been, you know, I'm way old. I have grandkids as old as, as Stacy's kids. But um, one of the things I, I tell my contemporaries is you better sell your big house on three acres in the suburbs because the demand is not going to be there from the millennials. So get out now before the value goes down anymore. But this report mentions that maybe there is a future for these bigger houses in the terms of multi-generational housing, things like that. Um, I know we're talking mostly about the cities today, but um, any comments on that? There, there is some demand for that design, and there was actually a Ledger article uh, earlier in the week about the drop, the enormous drop in value in the in the um, uh, McMansion style, and I think that that really proves that people want to move to the cities, right? They want to live in places that have transit. They want to live in places that have activities and opportunities and a nightlife. They want millennials in particular want to be where the action is because that's what they've been waiting for. They're, they want to be adults. They want to go out and do their adulting on their own. Um, so I think that that's really an opportunity, you know, looking at the drop in housing values that a lot of people said, hey, don't build those things in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, they're going to, you know, eat up lots of really important land and strain our entire infrastructure and make it really difficult to get to and from work because you have to have a car. Those That whole change, I think, is going to drive housing investment from the marketplace, which might, if we are able to design a good policy for inclusionary zoning, which I believe is being considered here in Newark and already exists in Jersey City and has been litigated by Fair Share Housing mm -hmm. to preserve the inclusionary zoning ordinance in Hoboken, um, those as those cities build new development, they need to make sure that a portion of those are set aside at a variety of affordable levels, including very deep affordable subsidies. It is not okay to just have 80% of area median income and say we did our job, right? We need family housing in those developments, um, and we, we need to make sure that they're accessible to people and affordable to people at very, very low incomes. Because those are the people who want to work and live in the city, and, and in some cases already do. And so to move them out, to rebuild something, and then not give them an opportunity to come back. So I didn't really answer your question, but kind of sort of. Well, you did, but any thoughts, Eric, or Renee on this one? I think there is a, a mixture of uh, both the housing market with millennials looking for homes as well as seniors downsizing moving back into the cities. That's, that's a big push as well. There are a lot of, I was, it was funny, I was, um, my wife worked down in downtown Philadelphia and, and, I'm, and I'm walking, you know, picking her up every day and walking around 
and I hope no one takes this the wrong way, but I'm, what are these old people doing downtown? <laughs> and come to find out, in the Philadelphia area, the fastest growing population in center city Philadelphia is seniors. Uh, folks who are retiring, selling their homes in the suburbs, moving back into Center City. So that, that is another market that is growing rapidly in our urban regions. Uh, and so that's something um, that, you know, when we're talking about inclusionary zoning, make sure we have enough housing for seniors in the cities as well. Um, I, I agree with my colleagues. Um, and I think that, um, Again, we, we just really need to look at um, all different types of people and, and creating that inclusionary zoning in all of our urban areas. Um, APN did a report with the John Watson Institute at Thomas Edison State University earlier this year um, that showed how we have pushed um, extreme poverty into all of our urban areas, big and small. It's not just Newark and Camden that we usually think of when we think of poverty. Um, and how we have the least amount of taxes and other revenues to deal with that greatest need. Um, and so we really no need to look at meeting everyone's needs um, and all different levels, like Stacy said, um, but also sustainable housing developments that ha give people access to transit and to shopping and to everything they need um, so that we can help our environment along the way as well. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the uh, I, I totally agree that the demand is is for the cities. And I was in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago, and I was one of those old people. I probably saw you. <laughs> well, I'm old too, so. That. But um, but I think I think the cities are at a critical time in the affordable housing because of the demand for urban living. And as you know, developers. Look, they're in, they're in a for-profit business, other than non not-for-profit developers, and 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 there's you know Toll Brothers, you're probably you know one of the largest national, but they have a division called City Living, and they are building thousands of luxury units in cities all across the country. So the question is, while this demand for urban living is is growing, cities are at a critical point as to how they deal with that and are. Are, is gentrification going to be squeezing out the opportunities for affordable housing, and is inclusionary zoning the only tool available? Well, I mean, I, I would say gentrification is something that not necessarily, if, if the cities are creative enough, now I think that's something that our elected officials really need to look at, models around the country that is doing this may sound weird, but it's doing gentrification well. For instance, um, in the city of Philadelphia, the city council president created what he called the gentrification tax. So there were neighborhoods in Philadelphia that was rapidly gentrifying. So he created gentrification tax where if there were long-term residents that had been in that areas, they were exempt from having their taxes raised. And so those are some creative tools that cities can use to make sure that they keep those long-term residents in those communities while there's redevelopment and developing happening for newer residents coming in. That way you create a mixture of, of, um, of uh, homes and people who have been there also be able to stay in a neighborhood that they've lived in all their lives. So I think that there are some areas that that has, was whole-scale gentrification, which was pretty bad, um, moved a lot of people out. And I think the city got a hold of that pretty quickly and say, well, wait a minute, this is not exactly what we want to see. So there are, I mean, there are examples all across the country. And I think New Jersey um, has to really look at examples around the country um, 
we tend to be not as, you know, we, we call ourselves progressives on the East Coast a little bit. Um, but when it comes to our elected officials looking at opportunities in housing, they're not as progressive as, we, as they are in something like West Side Seattle. High Point, there's a development in West, in West Seattle called High Point. Very innovative, creative idea of doing inclusionary housing. And sometimes our, you know, the political winds of the, of the East, Northeast region tend to get stuck and mired in politics opposed to seeing what's best for, for our city. So I'll stop there. And also in regards to um, the fair share housing settlements um, that are going to be happening, um, you know, our municipalities have to redo their master plan that decides where um, housing, retail, everything, commercial development is going to be, um, including low-income housing and affordable ha homes. <laughs> Sorry. Ding, ding, um, I'm going to start charging everybody a dollar. Peter, you owe me two dollars. Um, and, and even though it has to be looked at every 10 years, um, I would argue that because of the lack of um, affordable housing being built through COA over the last, you know, almost 40 years, um, we really have a great need in every municipality across mm -hmm. our state, all 565, um, to create more affordable homes. Um, and so you, as a citizen, can go to your town, wherever, where you live, where you work, and request that the municipality look at the master plan before that 10-year time frame um, to make sure that they are looking at what the needs are in the community. And it generally takes like three to five people in a community to get something done. Um, it doesn't take a lot of folks to get together um, and voice their concerns about the need in their community. Um, and so I would encourage people to kind of do that and, and also to connect with Eric and his colleagues um, to make sure that your municipality is doing what they need to do. So a couple of things. Um, a, there are seats down front and we won't bite. <laughs> right. So um, you can cut those of you that are standing if you want to come sit. We won't, we won't shame you or anything. Um, second... The COA process um, that we've been talking about, for everybody who doesn't know, is the Council on Affordable Housing. Those of us that work in the housing field speak something of a separate language, and we sometimes talk to each other in a language only twins teach each other. So if we're using acronyms that people don't know what we're saying, just somebody do this and we'll... Um, so the Council on Affordable Housing had provided regulatory, uh, regulatory framework for um, mostly suburban municipalities to meet their fair share housing obligations under the Mount Laurel decision that uh, the Supreme Court has stepped in thanks to the good work of Eric and his colleagues and is sort of forcing them to do what they didn't want to do and what the governor said, oh, I don't care so much. So we, we are now in a process of actually making those numbers a reality. That primarily affects suburban communities. However, in urban areas, there is a rehabilitation requirement uh, under the Council on Affordable Housing rules and what we hope the Supreme Court will stick by. Uh, and as a friend of the court, the network is encouraging the, the um, the Supreme Court to make sure that municipalities that are urban and have a have a rehab requirement do that. So there are some rehab requirements that we can also ensure. There's a right of first return. If a building is being gut rehabbed, making sure that people who either live there or live close by have first dibs on those on those homes um, and potentially asking the developer to subsidize rental assistance for those homes so, and those families so it's not just an inclusionary zoning but it's an actual direct subsidy. And third, and, and you know, it's sort of painful that we have to say it in, in New Jersey at this point, but rent control would be really freaking helpful. <laughs> um, you know, it's, we have it in some places and we have what, what folks call vacancy decontrol, which, you know, if you move around as much as I did, it doesn't really has almost no meaning. Um, but make you know that's something that municipal officials who want to control skyrocketing rents and gentrification could do 
you know, at, at, at their choice. And it's really a question of whether we have the political will to make that happen at a local level. That, that protects lower income families, you know, much more than, than anything else that we're not doing yet. And one more thing in terms of the redevelopment that can happen in our cities to really help our cities move forward um, are um, in terms of what I said earlier about making sure that we're meeting all of the needs of the people in our communities is having um, community benefits agreements yeah. so that people in that community are employed when redevelopment is happening and, and when commercial development is happening, um, you know, when it's finished in, in those um, facilities. Um, you all brought up COA, which when I used to be on the circuit talking, I would say uh, it's, it is a four-letter word, and, uh, and affordable housing was a four-letter word as well. So you can stop saying it. And now I could stop saying it. Affordable homes is a five-letter word. Um, but you, you brought up COA and the Fair Housing Act and the Mount Laurel Doctrine and all those things. One of the tools that was used for the first 20 years or so of its tenure, and then uh, nine or 10 years ago, I think, A500 right, got, got rid of it. Okay, so eight years ago, uh, was the Regional Contribution Agreement, which was an initial part of uh, the Fair Housing Act. And if those of you that are familiar with it, very simply, it allowed a town to transfer up to half of its affordable housing requirement to some, somebody else in return for payment of money. That's in its simplest form. And the belief was that this would help the urban areas because they would principally be the receiving municipalities and give them the, the, the funds to create more housing units. How did that work? Uh, not so well. Um, we were successful in outlawing that practice. Eric, give me five. Um, in 2008, the network, Fair Share Housing Center, and a whole bunch of other organizations, I don't think the Anti-Poverty Network was, was, was a, a officially engaged around then, so it wasn't that they didn't want to participate, they just weren't there to do it, um, to make sure that, that, that what uh, Speaker Roberts at the time called blood money stopped flowing uh, from wealthy white, urban, wealthy white communities to poor, primarily African-American and Latino communities, which actually built no homes. The money built no homes. It became slush funds for mayors in, in probably, I think the study we did was like seven or eight municipalities where they used the money um, principally to do some roof repair, some facade repair, the occasional boiler replacement. But the whole idea behind the investment in fair housing was to make homes that people could actually live in. So if we're not solving the market problem we talked about at the beginning, i.e. there are lots of people who need them and not enough of them, um, we are not really solving the problem. So not only did it not actually build any homes, it also concentrated poverty and race in places that were least able to handle it and, and shouldn't be. People should be able to choose to live wherever that they want to. And they really directed money at keeping people where they were and not giving them opportunities to move, which is the opposite of the Fair Housing Act intent. So. Yeah, and I'm very proud to say where I lived in Pensalkin at the time where I raised my family, Pensalkin was offered $3 million by Metford, and our town saw through that and turned them down. So unfortunately, some of our urban mayors did take some of that money, and unfortunately, housing didn't get built where it was supposed to get built out in the opportunity communities where we're trying to create a more inclusive uh, New Jersey in terms of uh, integrated New Jersey, not just um, New Jersey prowls itself on being diverse, but we're diverse but very segregated. Right. There's a difference between diversity and, and, and integration. And so segregation still is the what I believe is the biggest evil that faces us in, in, in America, our challenges um, from across all spectrums, economic integration, social integration, personal integration, and racial integration. These are things that really 
plague of these are the things that when Stacy talks about this term affordable housing, the images that come up because of this segregation history, segregated right. history that we have in this country, um, that you know, you know, color certain people a certain way because of what they perceive. You know, all of all of what we've done here in this country around housing, housing policy very early on was based upon um, stereotypes, racial stereotypes, and th these are the things that helped create policy that actually created the suburbs, but excluded minorities. So I can go on and on about that, but I'll stop. Um, ditto, <laughs> Eric and Stacy. Um, but also wanted to touch back on something Eric said a little while ago in terms of uh, best practices kind of around the country and inclusionary housing. Um, and there are some examples here in our state too. Um, in, um, I'm from Burlington County, so in Burlington County, Moorestown is a really nice, affordable town for everyone. Um, and offers a really good quality of life. Maybe not for enough people of color at this point, um, but for my We're municipality, yeah, <laughs> for my municipality in Florence in Burlington County, um, I think we've done a really good job. We have an excellent business administrator in our town um, who really has looked at all the monies. When, when court decisions were made, he immediately was on the application process to get those funds in place for low-income housing in our community um, and has worked with a number of organizations um, around this state to make sure that we're providing affordable housing. Um, but when farms were sold off in that community 10, 15 years ago to build newer developments, one of which I live in, um, it was built around the existing housing and the people who were already living there and were known as a blue collar town and, and pretty diverse. Um, and so I'm proud of my community. So there are examples uh, of, of municipalities in the state that are trying, you know, within um, the amounts of money that have been freed up through the, through the government and the low-income housing uh, trust funds. Mm -hmm. uh, let me mention if uh, we're going to have a few minutes for questions in a bit. So if you have questions, Tara has um, cards, index cards. So if you would like an index card, um, send it over, and we'll we'll begin those in a, in a little bit. Uh, I want to. Um, switch topics a little bit, if we can, to the topic of foreclosures. It's been a, uh, you know, in the Great Recession, there were a lot of foreclosures, and New Jersey uh, uh, <laughs> leading the nation in some categories of this, but I want you to talk about two categories. One is the people that are been through recently or going through, and then is there, in fact, an opportunity uh, with foreclosed uh, homes for some affordable housing? All right. Um, so I, I guess Peter didn't get enough of me talking about this last year on this panel, right? He invited me back to... Last year, the whole panel was foreclosure, foreclosure right? so, so we've expanded um, it this time. So I'll, you know, there's nothing has changed if you were here for that panel last year, except that it's gotten worse. Uh, we now lead the nation in, foreclo in regular foreclosures, as well as zombie foreclosures, which are the kind where you, your mortgage gets sold and sold and sold and sold, and then you can't figure out who the heck is trying to kick you out of your house. Um, and it's, I was just talking to somebody this morning about a ghost mortgage where they can't actually track the mortgage holder. They're not being foreclosed on, but they, they can't figure out who actually owns their mortgage. So there's some significant policy work um, that needs to get done to hold those hedge funds, investors, scam artists, whoever they are, um, out of state accountable. Not everybody, you don't have to have an office in New Jersey to lend to, to lend to somebody to buy a house, which is sort of strange. Um, so there's that whole ba basket of work. 
um, that needs to get done. But the foreclosure problem is significant, and we have only recently seen uh, a step up in activity from our state government. I know HMFA, the Housing Mortgage Finance Agency, is holding a number of series uh, roundtables uh, and informational fairs in the next four weeks or so to get people information about the Home Saver Program, which is a $50,000 write-off that the banks get to take without actually modifying your mortgage. So they took all the TARP money, Toxic Asset Recovery Program, from the federal government. The banks paid big fines for driving our economy directly into the toilet and penalizing working class and primarily Latino and African American homeowners who will probably never recover the wealth they lost in the, the foreclosure crisis. Um, and the banks, the, that money is coming from the federal government to the state government to then repay the banks to get you current on your mortgage. So you don't get to modify your mortgage. You don't get to right size your mortgage to make it be loan, you know, appropriately loaned to value. You don't get to change the terms of your mortgage. But the banks get up to $50,000 back and maybe you don't lose your house. So is it better than absolutely nothing? Sure. Is it the best we could possibly do with like the creative minds we have in the state of New Jersey? Probably not. Uh, we need we need a much more aggressive state intervention, and we just haven't had it under this governor. And you know, this this governor really I think subscribes to the philosophy that it's a market problem, and we'll let the market sort it out. And I guess if you have a home in Mendham and a home in Drumthwacket, you're not you know terribly worried. <laughs> But we're not political at all, so go I'm ahead. I'm not being partisan. I'm just being true. I mean, it's, it's you know, the, this governor has not, I'm not saying people should elect her and not elect anybody. I'm saying this is a political philosophy that says the market solves these problems. And we talked about it earlier. This needs government intervention. And that's a, philo that's a philosophy that's, you know, it's, it, we think that the government needs to say people should have the right to stay in their home for as long as they can afford it, and we should have some programs to make sure that they can afford it, and we should spend the money in a way that keeps people in their homes. And it has, puts the banks, ha, makes the banks have some skin in the game. They're, you know, they, there's, they have to be responsible for this. I, the fact that we're literally just paying them back with their own money yeah. is not a good, po it's not a good policy. It's bad policy. Renee, have a thought. Sure, and um, so I just add that to that that we need we have less and less money in our budgets to help people before their homes are foreclosed on, um, and so we really need to look at creative ways to help people with the limited amount of funds that we do have um, to make sure that they're not forced out of their homes because it's so much harder um, to get them back into safe, sustainable housing once that happens. But I also <laughs> go back again to the comprehensive theme um, and talk about um, how the earned income tax credit, which was increased by Governor Christie last year from 20% of the federal level to 30% here in New Jersey, that helped an additional 600,000 families avoid extreme poverty. Um, if um, we could increase it to 40% of the federal level uh, here in New Jersey. We could help an additional 500,000 families avoid poverty um, each year. Um, and, and also, um, the, the minimum wage. You know, we certainly have a proposal in the legislature right now for a $15 minimum wage. Um, it, again, the housing wage is really 20, over $25 to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment anywhere in New Jersey. Um, but a $15 minimum wage is at least getting us closer to that. Um, it's not a living wage, but it, it's, it's certainly helpful, especially if you have two adults in the home who are working at that wage. The other thing that we spend no state money on or very little state money on is foreclosure counseling and credit counseling and helping people you know, 
not get to a point where they're going to lose their house. We have very little in the way of, of counseling dollars. Almost all of every, almost everything we get comes either from the banks themselves, because at some level they understand that having people have a mortgage and keep a mortgage is good business, and second from the federal government. And there's just not, you know, there's not enough to go around. I, I know some counseling agencies we work with as a HUD intermediary, um, you know, have three to four month waits for folks. And and when people finally open the envelope and realize that they really have a huge problem and they're they need to see somebody, the wait is a very, you know, it's, in some cases it's just too long. Yeah, um, we're gonna get to a question of the audience, but one of them I'm just looking through is, is uh, on this topic of foreclosure, and that is, what about using eminent domain to seize and, and refinance mortgages before the homes are actually uh, taken? Is that feasible? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll answer it if you yeah, want to. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I know I, historically. I think it sounds great in theory. I think actually, making that happen is very, very legally difficult. And I think outside of Irvington here in New Jersey, trying it and not, I, I don't know that it's been very successful. I don't know that it hasn't been very successful. My, my gut is that it has not or everybody else would be doing it. Right. Um, I know the city of Newark uh, looked at doing it and found it to be legally very, very, very difficult. Yeah, um, my, my the, experience on it is uh, I've, it was... I don't know, four or five years ago, brought up a city, I think Fresno in California and Irvington in New Jersey. They threw out the, sort of the idea and the lending community resisted for actually pretty valid reasons that they would, they would not make mortgages if they didn't think they would be able to recover uh, the value of it. So it, it, it's a question, I don't ever ask the question, it hasn't gained any traction. It, it sounds good in theory, but apparently there are issues with implementing it. Well, it sounds at least like an opportunity to bring some of the banks to the table. And that's an, another thing that we've seen with Superstorm Sandy, which we haven't really, you know, we're almost at four years, and there are still 3,500 families who have not returned home. Um, those folks are paying mortgage, and in many cases, they're paying mortgage and rent, and they are facing they are facing dire, dire consequences. They will lose the homes that the government paid to rebuild, that taxpayers all over America paid to have them rebuild. They're going to lose that home to the bank. Like if the, the one thing we could do to help solve the foreclosure crisis in general is just if you're having, if you have a FEMA case number, you should just get a mortgage, an automatic three year, four year mortgage hold. Like you just extend your mortgage from 30 years to 35 years. The banks hate this. I cannot understand why. They could save a lot of time and aggravation and money. They're still going to get paid back. The federal government is spending money to rebuild their homes and then they're going to wind up empty. And it's just, it's like... Pound, you know, pound foolish, penny, penny wise and pound foolish. Penny wise and pound foolish. And the pound isn't doing so well lately. No, anyway, no, it so. isn't. Uh, um, by the way, on eminent domain, a little commercial at Monmouth University on February 9th. We will be holding a full day conference on all topics related to eminent domain. So it's not public yet, but uh, I'm working on it right now. So uh, uh, another question from the audience. I don't drop this. Um, dealt with. How does the way we tax property values rather than land value affect the housing supply? Any thoughts on that? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I mean, New Jersey's uh, taxing issues has, has always been uh, a major problem in the state where, um, you know, the cost of the, the way we do, for one of the problems we, we have, 566 municipalities. That, that's in over 600 school districts. So that itself um, causes great 
a, a large amount of tension on our taxing, uh, the way we tax in New Jersey, because everybody wants to be boss, everybody wants to be king, so you have to, you know, supply all these folks with um, uh, tax revenue in order to, to run their city or their or their town or their or their um, um, borough. So uh, that plays more than anything. I think that plays a major impact on the taxing of our, uh, our property and land in New Jersey. Uh, more than anything is the, the fact that we have all these different municipalities and 600-something school districts. Well, interesting. I'll let uh, Stacy talk in a second, but uh, one of the tools in the White House toolkit recently was an idea. It's been used, I guess, a few places to actually increase the tax on vacant land in cities to say we want it to be developed and presumably with affordable housing. And um, so it's an interesting idea. Any thoughts on that? On tax on vacant land. I guess if you can figure out who owns it, right. um, you know, I mean, part of the reason it's vacant is because it can't be developed or it can't be, you know, uh, acquired by the municipality. I mean, one of the things that this governor has not signed um, is a, va as a land bank uh, that we have passed, I think, twice or maybe three times um, to allow municipalities to take, take um, you know, to, to hold that land and develop redevelopment plans for it so that it doesn't, A, get purchased by speculators and B, gives some time to clean out the title and make sure the land itself is safe to build on. Um, so I think that that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure that it works in um, every city, that, it, you know, it might be... Um, it might be a tool in the toolkit, but I think if you could tax that land, you might already be taxing it. So I'm not sure why, you know. Basically to, to incentivize them to, right. to build it, yeah. to build something. Also, you don't necessarily want to build on every available piece of land, right? Some You need parks, and you need open space, and you need places for kids to yeah. play. A lot of details, but anyway. <laughs> Renee? And I think it was Mayor Baraka who brought this up uh, earlier this morning that years ago it was determined that the property tax system um, for our municipalities was not a good system to really help low-income people and you know as our cost of poverty report shows we've pushed more poverty into all of our urban communities where they don't have the commercial um, properties that uh, as much that pay property taxes. Um, they have the hospitals and other kinds of facilities that don't pay taxes. And then they also have the greatest need in terms of poverty of people who can't afford their property taxes. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I definitely agree that you know, there needs to be a look at that in terms of you know, our home rule state um, and the property tax system. Well, and, and, and just to also to touch on that, it doesn't just hurt low-income folks or medium-income or middle-income folks uh, to segregate. Wealthy communities pay a higher tax to segregate. So segregation costs us all in terms of taxes um, because exclusion costs. To exclude yourself it will cost you financially, socially, you know, all the aspects of um, your exclusion, it costs you money. Um, and it costs you a lot to live in exclusive communities. So that's just that little tidbit. I want that in a t-shirt. <laughs> Segregation costs us all. And by the way, Stacey, I checked the name of your, your organization, and it does have the word housing in it. It has the word housing, but it doesn't say. We actually intentionally changed it from Affordable Housing Network to the Housing and Community Development Network of okay. New Jersey. <laughs> Come on, Peter. Uh, one of the questions from the audience is, um, do you think we could get the political will to change zoning or legislation to split McMansions into two-family or multi-family homes? 
Um, maybe. <laughs> it depends on the municipality, yeah. right? I mean, it really does. Uh, there, are, there, were lots of, there was lots of discussion when I first started uh, at the network in 2005 and then sort of through 2008 um, before, the, before the crash there um, to try to get accessory development done in some of our more, uh, in the first, urb, first ring suburbs, um, especially South uh, Millville jumps to mind. We, we could not get it done in Millville could not get it done for love or money. Uh, one of our members who's no longer in business there, um, AHOME, uh, tried very hard to pass a piece of legislation at the local level to do that because there were so many families that wanted to bring mom or dad to live with them. Um, and so there's, you know, I think it's really a question of, educa of education and outreach to neighbors and doing some real community organizing so that people understand what the impact would be. I do know that um, folks in the supportive housing world are talking about trying to turn uh, McMansions and underutilized larger homes into effectively either age, you know, share, share, shared homes um, or, you know, group homes or some combination of those things. And there's, there's some legal issues with how you do that, but uh, it, in terms of a shared home, um, unless the community is deed restricted in some way that prevents you from renting you parts of your home, you should, people are able to do that. And I know that uh, the supportive housing community is looking at that as a possible, you know, as another tool in the toolkit. Co-op living is another trend that is happening, particularly around millennials. So these are some great tools and strategies that are out there for municipalities, cities to really look at creative ways. And I, and I keep coming back to we have to be more innovative and creative. I think we are. It's just that our elected officials need to be aware of what other cities and, and uh, towns around the country are doing to address these issues of, uh, in, in housing, housing crisis in America, period. So there are many different uh, tools out there to, that can really change the trajectory of housing. Uh, and I would think just, I haven't thought about this before, but I would think on this, you know, breaking up big homes into units, if, if probably more suburban municipalities were to get COA credit, so they didn't have to create a new unit, they, that might incentivize. Oh, we we, we can definitely uh, talk we, about that. I mean, we that, did talk about it. Yes. At, at, under S one, I believe we talked about yeah. making you know doubling up S one for those of you not yeah. speaking this this twin language was a piece of legislation. The governor demanded that yeah. he get a bill that eliminated COA. We gave him a bill to do that, and he still vetoed it. And I think Mayor Chang did that down in um, Willingboro. Yeah, and so there are uh, Westmont. I think another. Oh, I'm sorry, Westmont. Westmont. Yeah, sorry. When she was mayor, did yeah. some of, did some of those things. So there's like. Renee said there's examples in New Jersey if other municipalities are willing to look, look, you know, get their head out of the sand. And so we've got two minutes. Uh, two. This is a two-minute warning. We've got two <laughs> minutes. I'm going to ask you one quick. She had it last so thought. just one response in terms of the political will to, to make significant change. Yes. Um, I'm a social worker and community organizer, so that's my background. Um, and so that this kind of comes from that. But um, I would argue that we haven't had any significant social change that has helped people in our country without a critical mass of people believing that there is a systemic issue and problem um, and coming behind that discussion. Um, and so we need to be talking to our neighbors and our family and people in our community um, and people we work with um, and helping to kind of come full circle back to Stacy's initial comment about reframing this debate on what the issues are and why we have this problem in our state. Okay, you have one question, you have 42 seconds each. <laughs> if you were to have one wish for the next governor, what would it be? 
one, one, one wish for something they would do, or one wish? One wish that, whatever. One wish um, that you want the governor to do with regard to this affordable, affordable homes issue. Oh, I, I think that the next governor needs to significantly raise taxes on the people who can most afford it, and that would give us a tremendous amount more of ability to fund the things that help create affordable homes. And the only way we're going to do that is if we go back to the tax policies that we had when the state was thriving and made sure that people who could afford to pay their fair share do. Right now, we, we do not do that. Um, I, I don't know if I could say one. I think you know there are so many different things that could really help, um, but certainly we need to um, create an environment where we can create a, a lot more affordable housing in our communities, and the state can play a role in that in helping our municipalities. I, I wanted to say a few, uh, uh, many different things because I'm an integrationist. I was going to go with you know we, we focus on integration, but I think if the next governor to stay out of fair share housing's way <laughs> and let us do our job. Um, I think, I really think we'll, we'll move New Jersey forward when it comes to creating integrated communities around. Because be honest with you, you know, with all the litigation going on and all the frustration over 40 years um, and the cost of that for taxpayers, your local town fighting affordable housing, you're paying for it, your attorneys and all that. I think we are having some movement. We are, we are involved in a lot of settlements around the state and towns are starting to get it. You know what, enough is enough. Let's figure out a way to make this work. So if the next governor would just get out of our way or don't get in our way, I think we can see some movement for housing getting built. Um, We're out of time. How about a big hand for the panel? Thank you for joining us. For more information on NJ Spotlight or to offer comments, please go to njspotlight.com. To learn specifically about this conference, visit njspotlightoncities.com. Production services were provided by professional podcasts, which can be found at beingthemedia.com. For everyone here at NJ Spotlight, this is Lee Keo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>